Welcome to Title VII, The Movement, hashtag the right to sue, the podcast that speaks to workplace discrimination as it pertains to the controversial Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that covers both state and federal laws that outline five major protected classes. Title VII prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. I'm Paige, and this is my co-host, Griffin. Hello, and welcome. Please subscribe to this podcast and make sure you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can reach us at rwtv2020 at gmail.com. Our aim is to present employees and employers with in-person and written personal testimonies, along with case study information, citing relatable circumstances and similar situations that will empower whosoever wills with the capability to execute a compelling need to have Title VII law enforced to defend their civil rights in the workplace, helping to eliminate hostilities due to discrimination that results in racism. Our mission is to make impact now in real time. Under Title VII, the individual class is stated or considered protected because of the history of unequal treatment. The commission's vocation is to function as a national law firm, working collaboratively to maximize its impact on employment discrimination by resolving lawsuits brought on behalf of groups of individuals or even one person. I myself having been such a person. With that being said, for many people, discrimination is an everyday reality. We are talking about institutional discrimination, which involves discriminatory practices, laws, and procedures within certain companies and social institutions. We are talking about permissible practices and procedures that cause discriminatory consequences. And the topic is and will always be workplace discrimination. On today's podcast, we will introduce the amicus curiae brief. The term is Latin and it means friend of the court. It's a legal brief, which is a statement of interest filed in the appellate courts where cases are reviewed on appeal and to reverse decisions of inferior courts. In this case, the EEOC is presenting the brief. This case raises the issue of whether harassment and discharge of an individual because she is transgender is cognizable, perceptible, clearly identifiable, a claim within the jurisdiction of the court as discrimination because of sex. Defendant Sachs and Company moved to dismiss plaintiff Jamal Leith, complainant, on the ground that Title VII does not protect transsexuals. The commission has taken the opposite position namely that intentional discrimination because an individual is transgender can be proved to be grounded in sex-based norms, expectations, or stereotypes. In the commission's view, Sachs' argument to the contrary ignores Supreme Court presidents holding that discrimination against an individual because he or she does not conform to gender stereotypes is sex discrimination under Title VII. Citing the Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins, 490 U.S. 228 1989 case and numerous appellate court decisions recognizing that transgender-based discrimination 
is sex discrimination. This case also raises the issue of what an individual must allege in an EEOC charge before they may pursue a claim. The EEOC investigate charges and has issued a regulation outlining how specific a charge must be. Sachs' motion to dismiss argues for a level of specificity that is at odds with the EEOC regulations, the Fifth Circuit precedents, and the purpose of its charge filing argument. Finally, Sachs invokes the wrong standard when it argues dismissal of Jamal's claim that Sachs fired her for filing an EEOC charge. The correct standard derives from the participation clause of Title VII's retaliation provision. The opposition clause standard that Sachs cited in the court was not the correct standard. Because the court's ruling could implicate Sachs showing them to be responsible in some way by the interpretation and effective enforcement of Title VII when the commission offers its views for the court's consideration. These are the statement of the issues. One, whether discrimination against an individual because he or she is transgender is cognizable is discrimination because of their sex under Title VII. Two, whether Jamal's EEOC charge satisfied the administrative prerequisite to a suit alleging transgender discrimination. And three, whether Jamal engaged in protected activity for purposes of a retaliation claim that she filed an EEOC charge and opposed conduct that a reasonable person would believe is unlawful. These are the statements of facts. Jamal began working at a Saks outlet as a selling and service associate. At the time of her hire, Saks was aware that Jamal was a transgender individual and identified as a woman. Jamal transferred to a full-line Houston location into the position of selling associate. Over a few months, Jamal experienced inappropriate comments and hostility from managers and co-workers regarding her gender identity and expression. Jamal was asked to change her appearance to a more masculine one and told that she should separate her home life from her work life. Management also told Jamal that she should not wear makeup or feminine clothing. Sachs employees referred to Jamal using male pronouns, threatened her, and insinuated that she was a prostitute. She complained in writing to management about the harassment, but Sachs took no action. Jamal filed an EEOC charge alleging sex discrimination and harassment based on gender, male, transgender. Sachs terminated Jamal 10 days after she filed her charge. Jamal amended her charge to include retaliation. The EEOC sent a letter of determination to Jamal, stating that she was subjected to intimidation and harassment based on sex and due to her failure to conform to stereotypical male behavior in the workplace. Conciliation failed and the EEOC issued a right to sue notice. Jamal filed suit alleging harassment and discharge because of her sex and retaliatory discharge in violation of Title VII. Sachs has moved to dismiss. This is the argument. Transgender discrimination is cognizable as discrimination because of sex under Title VII. 
the Supreme Court has clarified that the phrase because of sex means that gender must be irrelevant to employment decisions. The plaintiff in Price Waterhouse was a female senior manager who was being considered for partnership in an accounting firm. There was evidence that she was denied partnership because she was considered not feminine enough in dress and behavior. Her evaluators suggested that she could improve her chances for partnership if she was less macho and learn to walk more femininely, talk more femininely, dress more femininely, wear makeup, have her hair styled, and wear jewelry. The court held that Title VII barred not just discrimination because the plaintiff was a woman, but also discrimination based on the employer's belief that she was not acting like a woman. After Price Waterhouse, the courts of appeals have recognized that Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination encompasses discrimination based on failure to conform to gender expectations. The Fifth Circuit, outside the transgender discrimination context, likewise has recognized that a plaintiff can satisfy Title VII's because of sex requirement with evidence of a plaintiff's perceived failure to conform to traditional gender stereotypes. In this case, Jamal has alleged enough to state a claim of relief that is plausible on its face. Jamal's allegations that Sachs discriminated against her because she is transgender, therefore states a claim for Title VII sex discrimination. Jamal's EEOC charge satisfied the administrative prerequisite to a suit alleging transgender discrimination. In summation, where Jamal's charge met the minimal general description requirement of EEOC's regulations, the charge satisfied Title VII's administrative requirements. Jamal engaged in protected activity for purpose of a retaliation claim when she filed an EEOC charge and opposed conduct a reasonable person would believe is unlawful. Sachs argued that Jamal could not state a claim for retaliation because she had no reasonable belief that the conduct she complained of violated Title VII. Sachs was incorrect for two reasons. First, Jamal's claim that she was fired in part because she filed an EEOC charge should have been evaluated under the standard applicable to claims based on the participation clause of Title VII's anti-retaliation provision. By making a reasonable belief argument, Sachs has invoked the standard applicable to a different clause, namely the opposition clause. The standards for evaluating claims under the two clauses are distinct. Title VII states that it shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer to discriminate against any of its employees because they have opposed any practice made an unlawful employment practice at this subchapter called the Opposition Clause, or because they have made a charge, testified, assisted, or participated in any manner in an investigation proceeding or hearing under this subchapter called the Participation Clause. The Participation Clause, by its terms, does not limit the statute's protection for participation. 
but requires only that an individual engage in any of the identified protected activities. While the opposition clause applies only to those who protest practices that have reasonably and in good faith believe are unlawful, the participation clause applies to all individuals who participate in the statutory complaint process. Because Jamal filed a charge with the EEOC, her claim that she was fired in retaliation for these filings requires no additional criteria for protection under the participation clause. Jamal also claims that she was fired in part because of her complaints in the Sachs workplace. These complaints should be evaluated under the opposition clause. That clause protects an employee from retaliation if they had a good faith, reasonable belief that the challenged practice violated Title VII, even if the practice is not ultimately found to violate the Title VII statute. In this case, Jamal can satisfy the reasonable belief standard. Federal courts have held that transgender discrimination does in fact violate Title VII. Jamal claimed that she was fired in part because of her complaints. Jamal satisfied the reasonable belief standard. Federal courts have held that transgender discrimination does in fact violate Title VII. Jamal could reasonably have believed she was opposing conduct unlawful under Title VII, and so she engaged in activity protected from retaliation. The outlines of the sex stereotyping doctrine that transgender persons can use as a basis for Title VII discrimination claims are complex because there is a potential bias of recovery under Title VII, the plaintiff's beliefs are reasonable. Jamal could reasonably have believed she was opposing conduct unlawful under Title VII, and so she engaged in activity protected from retaliation. The outlines of the sex stereotyping doctrine that transgender persons can use as a bias for Title VII discrimination claims are complex because there is a potential bias of recovery under Title VII, the plaintiff's belief was reasonable. The conclusion of this matter, for the reasons stated, the EEOC urged the court to deny Sachs' motion to dismiss. In the case of Zorda versus Altitude Express, the Second Circuit has agreed to review en banc its decision in which it held that Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination did not encompass discrimination based on sexual orientation. There was a circuit split on this question. The Seventh Circuit sitting en banc, spelled E-N-B-A-N-K, overturned its own precedent and became the first appellate court to hold that Title VII covers claims of sexual orientation discrimination. En banc is a French term for or meaning in or on the bench. In the legal context, it is understood to be a session where a case is heard before all the judges of a court, rather than a partial panel of judges. A case being heard en banc is usually decided by a majority vote of the judges from a full court of all the appeal judges in jurisdictions where there is a three or four judge panel. The Second Circuit confronted the question again and the EOC filed a amicus brief 
at the Second Circuit's invitation, arguing that sexual orientation discrimination claims fall squarely within Title VII's prohibition against discrimination on the basis of sex. Among other reasons, the EEOC's brief stated that the line the Second Circuit drew in its previous decisions between sexual orientation discrimination and discrimination based on sex stereotypes is unworkable and leads to absurd results. The DOJ filed its own amicus brief in opposition to the EEOC. The DOJ pointed to precedent settled for decades that Title VII does not prohibit sexual orientation discrimination as a matter of law. Therefore, the question of whether sexual orientation discrimination should be prohibited by statute, regulations, or employer actions is one of policy, and any efforts to amend Title VII's scope intentions should be directed to Congress rather than the courts. The rule is... Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination applies to any practice in which sex is a motivating factor. It's the Unlawful Employment Code 42 USCS 2000E-2M. Sexual orientation discrimination is a subset of sex discrimination because sexual orientation is defined by one's sex in relationship to the sex of those to whom one is attracted, making it impossible for an employer to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation without taking sex into account. Sexual orientation discrimination is also based on assumptions or stereotypes about how members of a particular gender should be, including to whom they should be attracted. Sexual orientation discrimination is associational discrimination because an adverse employment action that is motivated by the employer's opposition to association between members of particular sexes discriminates against an employee on the basis of sex. These three perspectives together, amply more than enough, demonstrate that sexual orientation discrimination is a form of sex discrimination. Facts. Donald Zorda, a skydiving instructor, brought a sex discrimination claim under Title VII, alleging that he was fired from his job at Altitude Express, Inc. because he failed to conform to male sex stereotypes by referring to his sexual orientation. Issue? Was Zorda's sex discrimination claim alleging that he was fired from his job at altitude because he failed to conform to male sex stereotypes by referring to his sexual orientation meritorious? Answer, yes. In conclusion, the court held that Zorda's sexual orientation discrimination claim against altitude was an actionable subset, a part of a larger group of related things of sex discrimination under 42 U.S.C.S. 2000E-2A and 1 and M because sexual orientation was defined by one's sex in relation to the sex of those to whom one is attracted, making such sex discrimination impossible without considering sex. Sexual orientation discrimination was a subset 
a part of a larger group of related things of sex discrimination because it was based on stereotypes about to whom members of a particular gender should be attracted. Sexual orientation discrimination was a subset of sex discrimination because it was motivated by an employer's opposition to association between members of particular sexes. The court further held that Zorda had a cognizable, perceptible, clearly identifiable within the jurisdiction of a court sex discrimination claim because he alleged he failed to conform to the straight male macho stereotype. Seventh Circuit held in Hively versus Ivy Tech Community College of Indiana that sexual orientation discrimination is prohibited under Title VII. On March 27th, in Christensen versus Omnicon Group, Inc., Second Circuit affirmed contrary view, in line with all other circuits to consider the question. In a landmark decision, the Seventh Circuit, sitting on Bach, and in eight to three decision overturned its own precedent to hold that Title VII prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Hively versus Ivy Tech Community College of Indiana. Until this decision, federal appellate courts had uniformly held that Title VII's prohibition of discrimination on the basis of sex does not prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. The EEOC, however, has taken the position that Title VII's prohibition against sex discrimination includes discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. As a result, courts have struggled with the question of whether allegations of discrimination or harassment brought on the basis of sexual orientation could be actionable under the rubric or category of gender stereotyping, cognizable within the jurisdiction of the court under Title VII. The Hively majority wrote that the common sense reality is that it is actually impossible to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation without discriminating on the basis of sex, and that the time had come to overrule their previous cases that had endeavored trying hard to find and observe that line. The decision reversed and remanded the lower court's dismissal of the plaintiff's Title VII claim that she was discriminated against with respect to promotion decisions because she was a lesbian. The decision reversed and remanded caused the case to be returned to the lower court to follow the ruling the higher court made as the case proceeded. A plaintiff who had unsuccessfully alleged that she was fired because she is gay moved from a rehearing of her claims by a full panel of the 11th Circuit. The week before the Hively decision, the Second Circuit reaffirmed its previous rulings that Title VII does not cover claims of sexual orientation discrimination. In the case of Christensen versus Omnicom Group, Inc., the three-judge panel noted that it was bound by the circuit's precedent, which it would not overrule unless the court determined to do so in an unbanked decision. The panel nonetheless permitted the plaintiff, a gay man, to pursue a Title VII claim on the basis of gender stereotyping. Significantly, in his concurring opinion, the judge called for the Second Circuit to revisit its decision in the context of an appropriate case. He also remarked that it well may be that the Supreme Court will ultimately address 
the question of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. The facts in the case highlight the issue presented by Title VII sexual orientation claims. The plaintiff, an HIV positive, openly gay man, alleged that his supervisor harassed him by targeting his effeminacy and sexual orientation, including by drawing pictures depicting the plaintiff in tights and a low-cut shirt, prancing around, circulating a poster with the plaintiff's head attached to a bikini-clad female body, and telling other employees that he was effeminate and gay and must have AIDS. The plaintiff's Title VII claim alleged that he was discriminated against due to his HIV-positive status and failure to conform to gender stereotype. The above decisions deal only with federal anti-discrimination protections under Title VII. A variety of states and local governments have expressly barred sexual orientation discrimination under their anti-discrimination laws. In some states, human rights laws prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Our takeaway for these cases, amicus curiae, if the commission approves a amicus recommendation, the OGC retains discrimination subsequently to make edits to the brief that are consistent with the amicus approval. Pursuant to the general counsel's authority over the conduct of litigation after a amicus brief has been filed. After a amicus brief has been filed, the OGC retains the authority in appropriate cases to address intervening legal developments that could not materially alter the approved amicus argument through our appropriate means. Example, filing with the relevant court a federal rules appellate procedure letter called a FRAP 28J letter. The letter must state the reason for the supplemental information in support of the case and can't extend 350 words to be used as directed, immediately, and sparingly. The commission's statutory authority includes the power to change its position on a legal issue, including a legal issue addressed in a pending amicus brief. These procedures are effective and supersede the revised procedures for obtaining commission approval of a recommendation to participate. Amicus Curie. Our podcasts are aimed at providing information of litigation and regulatory developments that affect employees and employers. The podcasts cover complex discrimination issues and executive employment matters. This is the disclaimer notice. The podcasts are an informational product and should not be considered a substitute for legal advice. Any references, links, or other knowledge resources are for informational purposes only.